0: To the Christadelphian Classics podcast, brought to you by Wilderness Voice. Conviction and Conduct by Islip Collier, Part 2, Chapter 10 Preparation by Tribulation. An English writer of great reputation once remarked that prosperity was the blessing of the Old Testament and that adversity the blessing of the New. Having stated this broad distinction, he tried to qualify it by pointing out that even in the Old Testament there's some recognition of the blessings that accrue from divinely administered chastening. The statement needed even more pruning than this, for although at the first sight it may seem to express a truth, it becomes evident on closer consideration that there is no real difference in this matter between the two dispensations, under both covenants, prosperity is exhibited as the final blessing and under both covenants adversity is commended as a means to an end. Before I was afflicted I went astray but now I observe thy word. This passage from the book of Psalms is the enunciation of a general principle which is exemplified in all parts of the Bible in the lives of the fathers who dwelt as strangers and sojourners in the land of promise, in the history of Israel, in the repeated declensions during the times of prosperity and purification through adversity, and it's only more fully manifested in the lives and writings of the New Testament saints. We must through much tribulation enter the kingdom. Exaltation is only to be after we have suffered a while. This is only re-emphasis of the principle laid down in the psalm, and it is instructive to note that some of the most complete expositions contained in the New Testament give extensive quotations from the Old. The beautiful scripture which speaketh unto us as unto children comes from the book of Proverbs. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, Neither be weary of his reproof. For whom the Lord loveth, he reproveth, even as a father, the Son whom he delighteth. In truth, the only difference between the Old Covenant and the New in this respect is that in former times the land of promise was inherited under the law of Moses, whereas later it lay desolate. In former times, obedient servants received some typical blessings in the chosen country, whereas now Israel, both natural and spiritual, are gathered among the heathen. The underlying principles remain unaltered. The final blessing is complete unity with God and an abundant inheritance of all desirable things. Adversity and suffering play their part in the preparation for the meeting with God. It would surely be a mistake, however, to assume that misfortune and disaster befall the servants of God more than other men. When the Apostle declared that the way into the kingdom was through much tribulation, he did not imply that the way to everlasting chains of darkness was through much happiness and ease. The Bible verdict is quite the other way, and a survey of this troubled world, confirms the truth of it. The most genuine joy is to be found among the servants of God and the most complete misery and discontent is to be found among the most thorough servants of sin. It is a great mistake for brethren to be anxious to represent that they suffer much for their profession. It seems almost like an insult to God for one to say, if it had not been for the truth I might have been well off instead of being poor and hardly securing the bare necessities of life, these might-have-beens are very uncertain. Were it not for the truth, he might have been in the workhouse or in prison. Trouble is the common lot of humanity. Only in the case of the righteous it is divinely controlled, and covered by the gracious assurance that we shall not be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. The question may then be asked, wherein is the force of the Apostle's words regarding the chastening God administers to those he loves? If as much or more trouble might have been heaped upon them by the accidents of time and chance, had they never known the way of life, where is the significance of tribulation or of the Apostle's words? one answer has already been indicated. The sufferings of a saint are divinely regulated while the sufferings of sinners have been accurately described by much afflicted poet as the bludgeonings of chance. There is, however, another answer to the question. There is one kind of tribulation experienced at all times by those who try to serve God, and from which the thoroughgoing servants of sin are quite exempt. It is described most vividly in the 7th chapter of the Epistle to Romans. It is the struggle against our own fleshly weakness, which may become so severe as to lead one to exclaim, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? All those who are described as having washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb will have passed through severe tribulation of this kind. There is no escape from it. And, generally speaking, the more spiritually minded a man is, the greater will be the struggle, the more severe the trial. Other troubles, sickness, bereavement, poverty, weariness and all other evils that afflict humanity are a common heritage of saint and sinner. The principal difference between the two cases is that the troubles of saints are divinely controlled while sinners are far more the sport of chance. Those glorious ministering spirits sent forth to the heirs of salvation encamp around those who fear God and deliver them. Whereas when the angels have a special mission to aliens, it's generally because the long-suffering of God has come to an end and human society must be subjected to a drastic purging. Time and chance happen to all, but sometimes chance is controlled for good or evil. Other men beside Joseph have been wrongfully imprisoned. Other men beside Job have lost their possessions and have been stricken with illness. Other kings beside David have been driven from their thrones by rebel sons, but in the vast majority of these cases, the afflicted men have been the sport of chance. And where they have been the subjects of providential control, the object may have been to punish rather than to purify. In the special instances mentioned, the apparent evil was only the chastening hand of God on beloved, although not faultless, sons. And this thought brings us back to the most difficult and most interesting phase of the subject, It's comparatively easy to see that chance advantage or chance adversity may befall an alien world. It's easy to accept the truth that every servant of God must pass through some tribulation arising out of the conflict with self. But there remain these other evils to be explained. God fearing men are sometimes plunged into dire misfortune. Prayer seems of no avail. The very effort to do good sometimes appears to enhance the evil, and if the angels of God surround such an one, it appears as if they have a charge to torture rather than to deliver him. Yet we're told that we must not regard this as the evidence of God's displeasure, but that whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Why this suffering? Why should it be necessary for those who are trying to serve God faithfully to pass through such tribulation? The analogy suggested in the passage just quoted is of some assistance, but it fails to give complete satisfaction. The feeling may arise, and we've heard it put into actual words, that there's No comparison between the gentle punishment and reproof of a parent will administer and the awful suffering to which some sons of God have been subjected. Perhaps the most important work one could possibly perform in writing a treatise on the philosophy of suffering would be to give a clearer view of the relationship between punishment and reward and a better understanding of what is meant by the fatherhood of God. When men feel rebellious against the trials which overtake them and are unable to reconcile the evil they experience with the mercy of God, it is simply because they see everything in a wrong perspective. They are wearing short-sighted glasses which enable them to see their fellows and all near objects but which quite fail to give a more distant view we may at once point out that that if there is no comparison between the punishment of a father will administer to his son and the affliction which has sometimes come on the sons of God, neither is there any comparison between the two objects in view. Indeed, if we examine the matter closely, we are bound to recognise that there is a far greater disparity between the objects than between the reproofs. The fact is, Man looks at the matter from the narrow standpoint of merely human life. The human father directs his efforts to train the child in such a way to fit him to take a proper place in the world of this day and generation. If there's some regard paid to the idea of a better life beyond, there's always the feeling that the same foundation of training will suffice and nothing added except instruction in the ways of God and exhortation to seek after him. The human father is rather like an older child in the nursery. He still shares the nursery's fortunes, and his horizon is practically bounded by its walls. He may well be able to teach the younger ones to behave according to the nursery etiquette and to qualify for nursery games, but he knows little of the great world outside, and when some evil or disappointment comes, He is as ready to cry as the youngest child. There can be no comparison between a temporal and eternal object since the finite can never be conferred with the infinite. Tis a fact, however, that in all temporal objects men pay great regard to the time required for the endeavour and the durability of the finished work. Who would not be willing to endure a single second of suffering in order to secure some substantial advantage for the rest of life? Yet, even a second is proportional of our allotted span. The fraction can easily be expressed in figures, and not such an appealing array of figures either. 60 seconds to the minute, 60 minutes to the hour, 24 hours to the day, 365 days to the year, and then 70 years for a human life. But the whole history of mankind does not constitute a fraction of eternity. The realisation of this fact helps us to see something of God's point of view, and we can understand why that which seems like the most awful suffering to us can be described as a light affliction. Which endureth but for a moment. The apprehension of this single fact is enough to reprove those who feel inclined to complain that the chastening hand of God is more severe than that of the human Father. There is, indeed, a disparity, but it does not lie in the direction the grumblers think. We must delve deeper than this, however, if we desire to understand God's point of view with anything approaching completeness. As men and women, we naturally attach too much importance to the individual life. This feeling does not possess us so much when we look back on the tragedies of remote history. No one grieves over the destroyed sodomites or feels that those personalities ought to be restored to be given another opportunity to repent. When men have been dead so long, we're apt to think of them as if they'd never really been and we do not feel that there is anything more terrible in their perpetual sleep than the prevented births of the children they would have borne had their lives been spared. From God's point of view, there is no limit to the possible production of human personalities and those who sin and perish are no more account to those who have never been. Therefore, Since God calls us from the dust and gives us all things we possess, what possible analogy can we suggest which will be a real illustration of the position? We are the products of an alien world, only living through God's long-suffering and, if by adoption we become children and are subjected to chastisement, It's only through God's withholding for a while some of his good gifts. A fair consideration of the elementary truths we've learned will bring us to the attitude of Job. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be his name. The chastening is grievous. We're made sorrowful by it, but our apprehension of the truth would make us sorry after a godly manner. The trouble with the grumblers is that they accept all blessings as a matter of course and comparing the best that they can imagine of life with the limitations of their experience think that they've been in some way been wronged. Whatever happens, they have no ground for complaint unless it was wronging them to give them a personality at all. But still, when all this is admitted, the question remains... Why should the servants of God who humbly recognise his supremacy and his goodness have to suffer in their time of preparation? We're told that he will not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men, so there must be some reasoning for the chastening rod to fall. Perhaps the consideration of a few special cases may serve, in part at least, to show us what that reason is.